my new save of uh, The Witcher 3. Oh because, my god. Yeah, because um, I think I'm at a point in life where I'm like, I have nothing left to look forward to. My hours are meaningless. Let's let's once again explore the great world of wherever the hell The Witcher is sent <laughs> with, with Geralt of Rivia. Yeah, does that continent have its Velen? Yeah, I, I just got to Velen, and there's Novigrad, and there's all the, the bigger city areas, and but I, I don't know what the continent is. And because no. we're struggling to remember video game details in earnest, I guess we're probably recording an episode of the Big Bang Theory Theory. Hi, I'm Nick. Oh, it's literally, it's on, it's in the official uh, Witcher Wikipedia, it is called the Unnamed Continent. So it's not a, oh. we're not bad at our jobs, they just did not. And that's Kyle, here, here fact-checking reassuring me that I'm not just stupid for having invested over 200 hours in this game and somehow still unable to know the name of the continent. It just doesn't have a name. That seems like something you would do. Also, but that's not... Oh. I was just going to say, as far as your video gaming goes, I was reading this essay about... It was actually... It was a book review of a book about gambling addiction. Uh-oh. Uh, specifically not, like, cards or stuff, but they were talking about the people who play slots machines in Vegas... And they were describing how people, the the dumbos who do not have gambling, who do not have slot machine gambling problems, think that the point of gambling is to win money and that they're just bad at math. But actually, any professional slot puller will tell you, no, the point is not to make money. The point is to enter a zone where you no longer have to think about your life. And actually, many of them will get angry when they win money because winning money pulls you out of the experience of just pulling the lever over and over and over again and seeing the lights flash and not having to think about your life. And as they were describing that, let's just say as someone who has played a lot of video games in his life, I wasn't entirely comfortable with like how easily I identified with the experience that they were describing. Yeah, this is haunting. I'm not comfortable with how we're starting this. This isn't usually what the show is about. It's, we usually talk about the show The Big Bang Theory, and then we get sidetracked later with nerd ephemera. But now we're we're pulling wide open our chests to expose the the black, grisly, rotten hearts underneath that have been decayed by overexposure to distractions from our miserable lives. But that's what that's what it's all about, right? Like you know, we're we don't criticize people who read trash literature for hours and hours and hours and hours because at least they're reading but they're well, they're that, nonetheless just consuming garbage media well yeah now that i think about it is the act of playing video games to lose like i think we've said this before but maybe the closest in television analogy is watching the big bang theory maybe that's why it's such a and when i say perfect i mean perfect for the this type of experience obviously perfect in the sense of being good in it but maybe watching the big bang theory now that i think about it is like watching the numbers spin on the slot machine it's like it's a good thing that there's never like any real tension or stakes or resolution of the plot because that might take you out of the experience of being able to watch the show and turn your brain off. That's true. I mean, like if there were a serious, big, dramatic relationship problem that were to, to come up and have any real impact, that might cause people to think of their own relationships and what that means. You know, it's because I, you know, it's, I think based on what you're saying, and some previous discussion we've had. We've talked a lot about the show needing to be incredibly accessible to be as popular as it is. But I guess in addition to being uh, accessible, it can't be too relatable. 
maybe. You can't empathize with any one character too much. Otherwise, you're going to get wrapped up in the actual character drama and have it genuinely affect you. No, I think it's I there have to, there has to be enough of a sweet like the plots have to be like it's slightly better than something that has no plot or no stakes whatsoever because it has to be engaging enough that some level of your brain can be like, "Ah, yes, there's a story I recognize here much in the same way you recognize the spinning symbols on the slot machine." But it can't be you know, complicated enough that you actually have to engage your forebrain because right. thinking hurts and reminds you that you're conscious, and we don't always want that. I guess we should get into this episode. I'm oh, I'm, I'm so bummed out right from the get go, <laughs> and I hate to break it to you, listeners. Maybe Kyle, you disagreed, but I thought this episode that we watched today was a real stinker, Rooney. It was bad. It was so bad. Oh no. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is no place for debate, I suppose. We're we're both coming out on the the nasty end of this, but to briefly describe what the episode actually was today, uh, today we watched season five, episode two of the Big Bang Theory, officially titled "The Infestation Hypothesis." So titled because the entire premise of the episode is, I mean, essentially Leonard and Priya have driven Sheldon out of the apartment with their their sex videoing that Leonard is trying to get into and he's he's not totally into but that that's for later and he flees to Penny's apartment sits in her new chair remarks on how incredibly comfortable it is and then when Penny uh, reveals that she just pulled it off of a, a sidewalk for free uh, Sheldon becomes immediately convinced that he is infested with all of the most horrible kinds of disease carrying mites that are uh, it, extant in in reality or imagination. And that's kind of the whole episode is like him just being increasingly upset about having sat in the chair. At one point he has a a, a daydream nightmare, daymare, I don't know, about going back to Penny's and sitting in the chair. Ah. Uh, But he sits into that chair and finds himself completely covered in cockroaches. And what was actually, I think... uh, a legitimately spooky moment for the first time in the show. Not that this is a spooky show. I wouldn't come to expect that, but it, I found it uh, surprisingly affecting. <laughs> um, I guess I also hate creepy crawlies. It reminded me there was a sequence once in an episode of House where a, it was basically the same. A client had a festering sore and their brain processed how badly it hurt with like a hallucination where there were bugs erupting from the inside of their leg and crawling all over their body. And that was in a very early episode of house. And I remember it because nothing else on house was ever quite that horrifying ever again. And I don't think it's because they didn't know how to do it. They were just like, we went too far on this one. They got letters. This was, this was, this was a mistake. People like this show, but this is too much. Let's tone it down and never go quite this like visceral body horror again. And this is this is years before we started asking questions like, should we include trigger warnings for spiders? This was, you know, the show you're going to watch at night that you're probably going to fall asleep to. Hey, check it out. Here's something incredibly upsetting just to, <laughs> just to throw you a little off kilter. So yeah, that happens. Uh, but then you kind of cut back and forth between that and uh, Leonard tries to have a video sex session from his bedroom with Priya. He tries some dirty talk. He's really bad at it. She she tries some dirty, dirty talk. She's way better at it. But then uh, the video freezes up 
Uh, Shelton gives advice through the bedroom wall, and that, that turns it all off. You know, what are you going to do? Yeah, and then Sheldon tries to inf- get Amy to influence Penny to throw out the chair. Penny gets bizarrely offended by it, like she's legit mad in a, uh, a potentially character-changing moment that comes out of nowhere. Uh, and then Amy um, tries to, to take it back, says she's sorry for trying to manipulate Penny, sits in the chair... And then some sort of creature living in the chair does, in fact, uh, bite her ass. Uh, so they freak out. They they run down the stairs hilariously. Uh, and then the, the final shot is um, after they'd thrown it back out on the sidewalk. It's Raj and Wallowitz discover, what do you know it, this very comfortable looking chair on the sidewalk that they immediately bring into, into the building. And so there are more details we can get into. But as far as like plot goes, that's really it. And as far as any sort of, like, resolution or climax goes, there isn't one. It's it's more just, like, an extended bit. And the bit being that Sheldon is scared of this chair. But he doesn't have any sort of involvement in trying... Well, I mean, I guess he does try to help get rid of the chair. But, you know, maybe maybe what we're missing is some sort of satisfied moment from Sheldon or, or some sort of... Uh, terrible ironic twist that happens to him because he gets what he wants when the chair is gone but i don't think we ever get any footage of him appreciating that or that he's even aware of it by the time the episode is over no that's true right he spends the whole episode he doesn't actually yeah so that's what i that's what i blame for this one being garbage Uh, i mean it's overall like just a blah episode but i guess like the structure itself just doesn't work because there's no real buildup or consequence. It's, yeah, it's just this unresolved bit. I did like Priya uh, doing what essentially was, as I've come to know, a, a JOI video, a.k.a. jack-off <laughs> instructions for, for Leonard. That was cool. I couldn't do it. I don't know. I've, I've, ha- I've dated ladies who have, like, wanted me to sext them, and, oh, I hate it so much. I don't have, I don't have it in me, Kyle. I, I relate to, to poor Leonard very much there. I can't. I can't be rude. I can't I can't be nasty, Kyle. Thanks for yes anding me on that. All right, cool. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> I'm just Sorry, let you I hang. no fine. I just I hit a wall because I was having the opposite. I was watching Call her a dirty whore. It's fine. It's what she wants, obviously. Just do it, Leonard. Man up. That's where my head went. Okay, well, revelation about Kyle here and his ease of <laughs> ease of nastiness. I I think I'm on the opposite end where uh, yes. I'm, I'm a sweet little baby vanilla snowflake uh, who all of the, the the dark hearts of the world are trying to corrupt um, with horniness. It's fine. Amy plays a harp. That's cool. She has oh, diverse yeah, interests. A, well, the, so that def, the whole harp playing thing, increasingly Amy's character. I mean, this is I don't know this to be true. But the only reason I could possibly think of why she was playing a harp in that thing is someone found out that Mayam Bialik can play the harp and was like, ah, well, that seems like something worth writing into the show to kill five men. Yeah, this is completely unrelated. Uh, Well, no, it's it's, it's a tangent. It's not completely unrelated. It's tangential. I I just recently finished watching the entirety of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And uh, Mayam Bialik plays... uh, a daughter of one of Larry David's friends who late in the series comes, she she's introduced, I think as a lesbian, but then comes out as trans 
And so at the end of the series, she's played by a, a different actor now, now being recognized as a he. And I think it's cool how like old man Larry David is able to have a trans character and have fun with it without ridiculing them. Uh, and also introduce a hilarious plot point, which is uh, th- they, they got bottom surgery. Uh, they elected to get an apparently enormous penis and uh, them trying to wrangle their new penis is, is causing all sorts of issues with knocking things off of shelves and such. So good fun times. That's what I was thinking about. I'd rather be watching when we were watching Big Bang Theory, I guess. Hey, did you <laughs> do you remember the episode where they go to Mexico? And, uh, or it's not, it's an island, Spanish island. Yeah. Larry, and there's the guy Larry pays to guess all of his friends. Yes. That was my buddy Frank. You met That's him. your buddy Frank? Yes, the the Mexican weight, psychic weight guesser. Uh, well, he's great. Uh, he's hilarious in that part. Uh, I mean, he's only on. He's only in the show for like five and a half minutes. But it's a real good five, five and a half minutes. Yes. Well, send send Frank my regards, and that he's an, he's an excellent carnival barker weight expert guy. He also recently in in the adventures of my friend Frank, who has never been on this podcast and will never be on this. The closest he recently met Mister T and was in a commercial with him. Now, why can't we get Frank on this podcast? What's the deal with Frank? Huh? Is he too good for us? I would think. I, mm. I mean, I can ask him. All right, that's. Uh, I'm promising Frank in the future, dear listeners. Uh, it's. It will be Kyle's burden. I'll have no involvement in it, but he will be punished if he doesn't come through. So, but yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else is talking about. Like this. There, there's a weird joke at the end where uh, Amy said explains how she's she's not going to let herself just carry out Sheldon's whims and trying to manipulate Penny to get rid of this chair. And then so he, he tries to bribe her uh, and asks what, what she could want. And her uh, response is to be kissed where uh, she's never been kissed before, uh, which is weird because uh, Amy, I think, pretty clear, obviously capable of horniness, but Sheldon not. And so why she brings us to him, I don't get. Uh, but his joke response of uh, to kissing where she's never been kissed is uh, Salt Lake City. And even though that's like an obvious joke, I giggled. I liked it. I had a good time with that. Yeah, one of the better jokes, bad episode. Yeah. I don't know, because like, with that little comment of hers, you know, it's easy enough to be like, oh, she's weird and laugh it off. But you have to think of it for a moment. You're like, this is a show that is positing we're Sheldon Moore game. That scene would have proceeded to him pressing his face up against uh, Amy Farrah Fowler's vagina and butthole. And, you know, I want it to go there someday. I know it never will, but it's, I don't like a show that keeps teasing things like that. I want Sheldon to turn into a utilitarian sex beast, like for his friends. He's like, I don't know if this is really my thing, but I'm good at it. And that's something I do enjoy. So yes. What if he, what if he were like secretly like the best at somehow like that, you know, just give his character something in all of that theoretical. Yeah. He's, he's able to intuit various um, internal curves that most humans are just incapable of comprehending in the first place. Calculating the the gradual, gentle slope of dead ass pennies around. I don't know. I, I, I'm going to tell you, Kyle, I hate this. I hate this episode. 
I'm looking for any reason to move on. You tell me anything else you want to about it, and I'll go there with you. But oh, I just, I hate this one. I'm. We'll give it one more. In. Nope. I think it it fails on every every possible metric, a good or even an episode of television. Let's move on. Let's do that. Yeah, I can definitely it's, keep us. My nerd recommendation thing of the week might not be fun, but it will definitely take up some time, which is what you want oh. to hear right before the recommendation. Right? <laughs> yeah, let's let's officially move on to our nerd recommendations. I'm, I'm also I'm I'm reintroducing the rating scale. I think you were you were four or five stars. I've I've opted to go thirteen, and I'm giving this one four out of thirteen stars. How do you uh, rate it, Kyle? Oh, that hurt. Uh, I don't know. Two out of thirteen. Oh, you're also doing... Okay, I, th- I thought we were going to keep using different skills, but if you're going to stick a 13, yeah, too. Okay, I get it. I feel that. All right. So, a 4 and a 2 out of 13, average 3 out of 13. Hooray. Can't reduce our fractions because 13's prime. It's the perfect number. Let's move on to nerdy recommendations. Kyle, you don't have a fun one. I'm going to tell you, I don't have a fun one either. Like, it was... I, I am recommending something I really enjoyed, but I wouldn't describe it as fun. Uh, do you want Do you want to go first? Are you eager or should I go? You can go ahead. I will go ahead then. So I've and then been, I'm going to try to eat up the rest of the episode. Okay. Uh, I have been playing a lot of video games. I'm not going to recommend a video game this week, but I've, I've grown bizarrely attached to Saga Frontier, which I gave an anti-recommendation to like a month ago, but it's still not a good game. I just appreciate how not good it is and how weird it is. And so it's, it's, I'm, I've really warmed up to it. Um, I'm also revisiting The Witcher uh, I just downloaded Final Fantasy XIV, and so that's probably the last you're ever going to you're ever going to hear from me. But none of it's really been sticking. Uh, but something that I have really enjoyed, which I only started reading um, like a month ago, I just kept putting it off, and finally uh, committed is uh, the book Kent State. Yeah, super fun. <laughs> um, by as in as in, there's a third word that always comes right after. I think the words Kent State. Yeah, football. <laughs> that one. Yeah, it's uh, it's by an author, uh, a comic book author I've recommended before. It goes by Durf Back Durf. And for Kent State, it's uh, pretty cool in that it's not just, you know, because it's a comic book, I think it really does a good job in the first place of not being just like a dry explanation of the facts of Kent State. Uh, the massacre is what Kyle was jokingly referring to. Uh, because like for most of my life, I've had some sort of awareness of uh, the Kent State shootings and I've seen documentaries about it. And yet I've never really felt particularly attached to it or affected by it in spite of the fact that it's such a horrible event. Um, and what the comic book did for me is that it it takes the, the people who died during the shooting and gives them each uh, a narrative to follow. Uh, and it's these aren't just like completely fabricated. It's what it's almost more of a work of of journalism in that uh, Durf Beck Durf uh, it did a lot of uh, research and interviews and like the back of the book, like a comic book, is like twenty pages of citations. <laughs> and so it it starts bef- um, like three or four days before the shooting, and uh, yeah, follows the four main victims uh, the, the, who died on, on just kind of what their days were like uh, leading up to the shooting. And it's weird because it's like you you want to get to know these characters, but the fact that they're being paid any attention to at all, like should immediately notify you that they are going to be <laughs> murdered and you're going to have to like lose them. 
it's so um i don't think there was any intent of having like a, a kind of a horror aspect to it but it was really you know like you're you're waiting for the bad thing to happen the whole time like everything seems chill there's well not chill there's obviously building tension but it's you're you know exactly what's going to happen and it's just kind of trying to get the details of how it's going to play out that are important. But yeah, it's, I could say more about it, but I mean, really it's, it's just great. It's, it, it's, uh, I think explains to me a whole lot better the background of the shooting as well. Like I, I know a lot of people, uh, not a lot of people, like, like a lot of media I've seen about it always focuses on the, kind of ambiguity of what happened with the, because for, for people who don't know, it's Kent State, this small kind of, uh, a, I don't know if it was a particularly left-leaning university, but, you know, it had a student population that uh, I think college students generally are left-leaning. And this was in like the latter days of the Vietnam War and they were protesting a lot. And there was a, Kent State was being p- paid particular attention to and uh, National Guard were called in response. Kent State in Ohio. I was just... just oh, yeah, it. sorry. Um, yes. And, and so the National Guard were calling to kind of uh, quell any protests that may arise. Uh, and so the way I've always kind of heard it framed is like, you know, who really knows who started the shooting or if like one of the protesters antagonized one of the National Guard members, however it was. And they never justify the shooting, but they're always kind of like, we'll never really know what happened that day. And, and maybe it's unfair for the author of the book here to kind of explain exactly what he thinks happened, but he does give a lot of background on the events that lead up to the shooting and why the tensions were there and how poorly the state, uh, the, like the, at the state level government, uh, governance and university governance, like all shit the bed a dozen different ways. And so it's like, it's, it's really, I think sets out what, what a tragedy it was and how, absurd and unnecessary and completely avoidable it all was um and so that's my recommendation yay comic books the funny pictures read them in the sunday newspaper uh but yeah can't state by derf back derf uh kyle your turn oh boy okay i had mine all teed up when uh, you were talking about dumb video game switched over to uh the 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 one of the most notable cases of military on civilian violence in the United States history. Well, mil- I should say military and our own civilians. Yeah, other civilians. I mean, I don't know if that's the correct word for them. But. <laughs> okay, whatever. So I'm going to talk about, a, I have fallen down a weird video game rabbit hole. And by weird, I don't mean obscure. I just mean very deep and not anywhere I expected to get stuck. So... I such is the nature of the rabbit hole. But sorry, yes. continue. <laughs> no. Sort of like Nick with his Excel saga or Saga Frontier, sorry. Saga Frontier and his Final Fantasy. I went, you know, back, I'm going through my backlog of games. I was like, huh, you know, there's this one game that I remembered when I was like playing when I was like twelve and being fascinated by, but I never beat it. And they made all those other ones. And I heard it got kind of weird and out there, and I want to see what happens. And I am of course referring to Kingdom Hearts. Oh Jesus! Okay, yeah, I, I am. I, I'm expecting a full report here. Okay, I, I knew you were. I was like, Nick is going to hate this. Well, because so, I love, I love goofy anime cartoon bullshit. But the second one of those games, I was like, this is a bit much. And in spite of like loving the first one, and so I just stopped after the second. 
I, I'm, I'm very invested in this. Continue, please. No, well, I haven't gotten that. I can only give – so Kingdom Hearts is as it's – it's an anime uh, live-action role-playing – sorry, live-action. An anime uh, real-time role – that's why I'm sorry. Role-playing action-adventure game made by Square Enix, the, the popular makers, of course, of the Final Fantasy series. Many of the characters, in fact, of whom have uh, cameos within the series – where you are, it has a pretty typical RPG plot. You are a young boy, you know, cosmic forces are eating the universe, and you go on a quest through various strange and multifaceted worlds and meeting a bunch of quirky characters while you unravel the question of, you know, who is, uh, who is, um, what is responsible for this monstrosity? And of course, there are some local evil bad guys who think that they're in charge, but they're not really in charge of the darkness, the darkness of them. And so over the course of the game, you know, things get bigger and grander in scale until you're finally fighting, like, basically the embodiment of all Eve saving the universe. And that is the first. Did I leave anything important out of my summary of Kingdom Hearts, Nick? Anything? I don't think you've even mentioned yet. Well, I th- you're talking about Square Enix and Final Fantasy. I don't think it was clear enough. This is um, very much on its face uh, a Disney square crossover and so yes. oh that's right there are disney characters in it aren't there i almost forgot about that part yeah and so when i this I'm, came out when I'm i was like with, 17 yeah. or 18 couldn't have been more of a square fanboy and i'm like i want to see what happens when cloud has reasons to fuck around with winnie the pooh i'm sold and so that's that's the premise the story is irrelevant the the, the real premise is oh my god worlds combined how are these characters going to engage with each other? Yes, I, I was being, I was uh, joking around, but um, I can't really impress, uh, like particularly in in like 2002 when this game came out. It's not like they hadn't made Disney games before. There were a whole bunch of Disney games, but it was always like you know your basic you know platformer or whatever, just with Disney characters. And then all of a sudden, there was this music video-like commercial that was going around on television where this woman was singing about when you walk away. And, you know, there were, like, spiky-haired teens, Mm -hmm. but they were hanging out with Goofy and Donald. And it was just, I really, if you haven't, if you can't go back in time and yourself, I really just can't like sell enough how strange it was both to play this game and to turn it on and like to be met with what was very obviously a game that I won't say uh like I don't how do I say this I don't want to make it sound like the plot is like adult or mature but it is like it's very much a game where like in the early minutes it's like are you ready to face down your demons do you think you do you think you know are you the kind of person who considers yourself a coward? Or are you the kind of person who's willing to do what it takes for the sake of your friends and survival? And I can't just express how weird it was to see that, like that kind of storytelling mashed up against an, Oh, and by the way, this is Alice from Alice in Wonderland. And she is in trouble for the usual Alice in Wonderland reasons. Oh, and also, yes, like I remember the point because they didn't, it wasn't like part of the pitch was not that you would meet all the final fantasy characters unless, you had read like a bunch about the game in advance so i like in the very first world when you're just on your island running around and your friends i was literally like huh you know this is kind of a weird coincidence like other than the two voiced npcs the other npcs on these islands are like 12 year old versions of the cast of final fantasy 10 mm-hmm. and final fantasy 8 
and then you fall through a portal, and all of a sudden Squall Leon is there, only he doesn't call himself Squall, he just calls himself Leon from Final Fantasy VIII, and he's hanging out with, like, Aerith and Sid, run, and it's just, like, the, the amount of cognitive overload playing that <laughs> game was just wild. And it was obviously, it must have cost, I mean... You know, probably compared to modern AAA games, but it's a real for its time. It was obviously it just a for very... the licensing, not for like the development of the product. It's not like cutting edge graphics and software, but well, I actually think it. I mean, I think for because they hadn't made any at the time. They hadn't made any other, uh, you know, real time fantasy fighters. Like they basically they would eventually end up sort of modding that formula into a lot of their, you know, more mainstream games, but. You know, it's very some of the things that stand out to me, um, like are is how vertical everything is in the first game. Like, you know, you're constantly like basically none of the bosses that you fight are ever at like your height level, so you're constantly like jumping like many many feet up in the air to like uh, you know swat at things heads that are all like these huge like you know area destroying things, which again is not that different in terms of scale. It's not that different from any other. Uh, Square Enix game where you're fighting something that's like a thousand times bigger than you. It's just like to literally actually have to think about, wait, how does my character's sword reach that thing's head was sort of like a weird, like I don't think a lot of games, the only other game I could think of that had that level of verticality against the bosses was like The Legend of, you know, Ocarina of Time, which was of course, you know, a very big deal. Um, And so, so there's all of that. And uh, I forgot what I was going to say about the the verticality and the area. Oh, I lost my train of thought. Not good. Um, anyway, so yeah, it's just a uh, it's just a very it's a very fun game, and I think it the version I played was the final mix version because basically, so to take a step out anyway. They made the first Kingdom Hearts, and they had no idea if anyone was going to like it. And then it was extremely, exceptionally popular, because it turns out when you make a game that loops in all of the people who are Final Fantasy addicts and all the people who just like, you know, Disney characters, that's basically everyone who owns a PlayStation in the early 2000s. So Yeah, it was absolutely built for uh, anime-loving adult children. Like, either you were 13 or you hadn't matured beyond the emotional capacity of a 13 year old, much like me at 18. And it was like crack. It's, it's hard to overstate how popular this game became. (laughs) Yeah. So much so that they made multiple interquels between it and kingdom hearts too. And this is where things really get interesting because they made what is probably like the plot of the first game. While it is wild that you are jumping from world to world, trying to figure out like why basically like cosmic Cthulhu esque creatures are, you know, are like invading the realities of like Peter Pan and friends. Like as wild as that is, if you just play the first game, I would argue that, you know, if you squint, well, I'll just say compared to any other JRPG, the plot makes perfect sense. I'm not saying it's like totally fine, but I just make it's not any more weird than like it was written by the guy who wrote Final Fantasy VII. And if you can follow the plot of Final Fantasy VII, you will have no problem with the plot of the original Kingdom Hearts game. And then they decided that they were going to make sequels and they were also going to make, you know, like, uh, you know, they were going to make one for the Game Boy and the Game Boy Advance, and most 
mind-bogglingly of all, they at some point decided that the plot of the main sequel was going to be dependent on you having played all of the side games. Because if you haven't played all the side games, the plot of the second one makes no goddamn sense. Because all of a sudden in the first game, while you're just fighting like abstract cosmic darkness... In the second game, you're fighting an evil conspiracy of anime pretty boys who have been running things from the shadows across multiple games and have their whole own weird, like, origin story. And just, like, figuring out where they come from and who they are and why you're suddenly Mm. supposed to care about them. A bunch of pretty boys that are all the crow so Disney and Square can make sure they weren't missing any part of the goth contingent. (laughs) Yes. At the, the start of the second game, you start playing as a different character who's really, I guess, the memories of the main character from the first game, but he doesn't realize that until he just, like, poofs out of existence and gets absorbed by the main character again. None of that is explained as well as the actual game, as I'm making it seem like it's explained. So there's all of that. Not, um, and so, yeah, and supposedly the more you keep playing them, just the more convoluted it gets from there. So I'm just starting Kingdom Hearts 2, not because I just beat, I beat Kingdom Hearts, the original last week, and I have spent the entire week in between just watching the cutscenes from the games between Kingdom Hearts and Kingdom Hearts 2, of which there are too many cutscenes. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's, I think the problem that the franchise has is that solid gameplay aside, it sort of disappeared up its own butthole, like with exponential speed, but I'm yeah. not going to let that stop me. I'm going to play kingdom hearts too, and hopefully I will beat it. And then I will be, and then I will play all of those. So I remember what I was going to say. I'm playing the, so because these games are, have such a strangely insistent continuity when they were making before they came out with kingdom hearts three, they realized no one had any way using modern technology to actually play all of the kingdom hearts back to back. So they released, um, remastered versions of either. You can either play the remastered slightly re uh, balanced versions of the games, or you can just watch the cutscenes. So I'm playing the main games and I'm watching just the cutscenes between the, for some of them. So that's how, why it took me so long to get to the other thing I was going to say, the other game that Kingdom Hearts weirdly feels like, along with uh, Zelda, Dark Souls. Not because mm-hmm. not because gameplay, I don't want anybody, gameplay-wise is much easier to play than Dark Souls. But in the sense that you're like running around in strange abandoned towers and like strange weird worlds and you're fighting like little shadow monsters and things. And then out of nowhere, like some gigantic eldritch horror that may or may not be reminiscent of a Disney villain boss will come out of nowhere and just, like, it towers over you and will kick your ass unless you have, like, all of your potions and spells optimized. In that sense, it feels very much like a Dark Souls. Also, you get to go truffle hunting. With Winnie the Pooh. The Winnie the Pooh sections, uh, and I say this as someone who likes sort of the weakest section. I don't remember how they worked, but I remember loving it. Not necessarily because of the gameplay. I just remember um, when you're introduced to Winnie the Pooh and the Hundred Acre Wood, uh, it's... Most of it has just disappeared. It's been consumed, I think, by this this abstract nothingness. And so all that's left is Pooh sitting on a log. And he's like, think, 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 think. And he's like struggling to remember what happened to his friends and everything else. And I was like, God damn, that's real. Even, even Winnie the Pooh is sad in this universe. This is... <laughs> yes. 
this is all of the angst I ever could have hoped for. <laughs> it is it is a weirdly melancholy experience from the very it's like you think uh, you know you think well they're basically just Disney games, but you don't realize like there's just something distinctly off-putting about watching like beast be like no i couldn't save it's like i couldn't save bell i tried but she was ripped from my beastly hands and carried off by the nothing and our whole world is gone now it's like wow like for real damn yeah i just came here because i like zippers all the characters have giant zippers and now i have to deal with all these emotions this is a terrible nightmare and fight chernabog the literal embodiment of satan i have to fly around his head while he shoots fireballs and lightning the size of like the sun at me pretty good game i haven't played it since it came out i don't think the first one anyway the final mix version i think is easier and i say that because i was able to beat it without too much trouble which makes me think i am a much i'm a better gamer than i was when i was 12 but i'm not that much of a better gamer i think they basically like re rejiggered the difficulty because the first one was probably its core demographic well We've given some recommendations. Is there anything else we want to get into before we ride off into the sunset? No, I think I'm... Okay. Well, a little bit of, short, of a shorter this one, uh, one this time, but don't blame us. Blame this goddamn terrible TV show we keep watching. But uh, you enjoy it enough or you enjoy listening to us talk about it enough. So hooray. Thanks for that. Um, I guess the only other thing I'll add is uh, I have officially started a streaming channel on Twitch uh, I'll maybe post hours someday soon, or I might abandon it altogether because I remember that when I play video games, it's my alone recharge time, and I have to be on a screen entertaining people is actually kind of stressful. So this may have all backfired, but let's see, we'll see. But yeah, if you, if you look for uh, hide thoughts on Twitch, you'll you'll find me there sometimes. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I guess we'll wrap it up for now. We'll go back to our our nerdy dipshit lives, and so we can have more things to compare this show to and and complain about next time.